salt. They're like huge seed pods. Pod, where two friends discuss pop culture and more. Here are your hosts, Matt Haynes and Jay Norman. Let's start with the Nevers, just so everybody's clear. I'm, I'm through episode three, so I'm a little bit behind on the Nevers. I do feel like now that I've got a few episodes under my belt, finally, after dragging my heels on this series, I can at least talk a little bit to it. You've got a head start. So what are you thinking of the Joss Whedon, no longer Joss Whedon enterprise <laughs> <laughs> that HBO's got going on with the Nevers? It hasn't won over critics for the most part from what I've seen, at least the early on reviews that I glanced at around the premiere date. But yeah, I'm interested yeah. to hear your take. Yeah, I'd seen the same thing, that it wasn't critically acclaimed by any stretch. It's very Whedon-esque. I mean, that, I think that's clear from the outset. I saw a critique talking about kind of the narrative being slightly muddled or unclear about where it wants to go, what it wants to do. I agree with that. It does have a tendency to meander, not give the audience much clue about who, where, what. I mean, I was willing to give it some leeway because of the first episode and getting familiar myself with the characters and the world itself to figure out where the hell are we, what's going on, who's in control of this world. You know, the, all those kinds of things seem a little odd. Okay, well, I'm glad that you're as confused by some of these things as I am. <laughs> <laughs> Through three episodes for me, I'm still like trying to puzzle together some of like who who these people are and what they mean. I, I feel like there's still, even at this point, there's still a lot of like references to things that have happened off scene mm-hmm. that aren't being explained, you know, references to events that happened to some of these characters before and like relationships. And it's really just adding to the confusion of, you know, what's going on and making it really, it's maybe it's challenging to follow. For- yeah, it is. Having said that, I'm interested in the world and I, I'm slightly ahead. I'm a couple episodes ahead and I think it does get better in the middle some of that is just in large part due to some of the acting of uh, who plays True, uh, Laura Donnelly, and then who plays Penance, uh, Ann Skelly. I think they do very well together. And then also the acting of Amy Manson, mm-hmm. plays Melody. In particular, her character is intriguing. And by that fifth, she gets more intriguing to me. But yeah, it's it's mostly to do with the acting and not necessarily the storytelling or more to do with the acting and the world they're in and not with the storytelling that makes me continue to watch. So I'm hoping the storytelling kind of catches up a little bit more. Like I said, by the time you get to the fifth one, I thought the fifth episode was a little more compelling. It was kind of a more straight ahead story. We knew what we were doing. We knew what we wanted to accomplish. There was a clear conflict that was um, encouraging. I will stick with this probably. Yeah. Well, how have you found it so far? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm I'm there with you with what you're getting so far too. There's a lot going on in the pilot. Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, I I was 
definitely multitasking a little bit as I had the pilot going. Um, so I probably <laughs> should have been a little bit more engaged to keep track of everything that was happening, but there's a lot, there's a lot happening. There's, you know, the origin, basically the origin story of like these characters, the touched, right. Is right. kind of like more or less detailed from a high level, you know, and then you meet the snatcher people and with the masks and then the, there's the Lords and the government types and then the playboy Duke guy. There's just a lot. And that's not, that's not really uncommon for these like fantasy worlds. Um, I think that's, that's been my experience with the first episodes, the initial episodes of some other recent shows like Carnival Row on Amazon came out a couple of years ago, very much the same, a lot thrown at you in the very beginning to like kind of get all the world building started and more recently, Shadow and Bone on Netflix, a little bit of the same too. That first episode just like is a lot of like, okay, here's here's all these world building elements we need to like present to you so you, you can, you know, we can tell you like where you are, what's what's happening. But, and I do want to, I want to contrast this series with Shadow and Bone as well, a little bit later. This initial, this pilot episode in particular felt just bloated, <laughs> just like, yeah wow, we could really just like streamline this. But this is Joss Whedon, you know, just like throwing a lot. This is one of the episodes where he directed that pilot. Yeah, and my, you know, my, at the end of that, I was just like, oh, okay, so this is the X-Men in the late 19th century. That's <laughs> what we're getting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. These are a bunch of mutants, pre- predominantly women. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot of male characters that we've met so far that are touched so I don't know if there's if they're going to elaborate more on that going forward, or if that's just something that ha- you know how it's shaking out early on here. I you know I also agree that the the two leads are really carrying the show, Penance and and Mrs. True. You know those those two primary characters are obviously the most sympathetic, the ones that you're most interested in. Like you know, they they big time echoes of like Buffy and Willow going yeah. on there, right? Yeah. Totally. I mean, these are like these are total weed and archetypes. I don't know if it's going to be all that effect, effective. This kind of like second time through, mm-hmm. or probably more than that. I mean, I haven't. I'm not super well versed in some of the other weed and television shows, other than the Buffy universe with yeah. Angel as well. But yeah, I'm. But I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued too. I think there's some interesting things. I mean, even at the very end of the you know the pilot episode, I was like, oh okay, there's they said brought it back back to the beginning and then you see what was going on in the sky. You see this weird alien thing that was, you know, floating through and that's what caused this event. I want to know more about that. I'm still feeling like it's a little convoluted, mm-hmm. you know, a few episodes in, I feel like there's, there's some, there's some fat that needs to be trimmed. I don't think I have any clear idea of what the playboy aristocrat character is doing. And I don't think I care, you know, I just, I just feel like, I don't, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere satisfying for me. And mm-hmm. um, it, it feels like an element that could just not be there. Yeah, James Norton's a great actor and it's too bad. He's being underused or misused in a way here. Yeah. The motivations of the character aren't clear. They're still not clear to me after five episodes, really. He's just a hedonist. You know, all he's interested yeah. in is gathering pleasure where he can seemingly to build a business of some sort with the touched, which I'm still kind of unclear about 
him being a part of the aristocratic class and has maybe lost his money, his funding, because he's tries to get his friend to fund him. You know, it's like, so it's, a, it's just a bunch of uninteresting things, really. I mean, who cares? Like you said, who cares that this yeah. guy this is through the touch, to, you know, both literally yeah. and figuratively and... This, yeah, exactly. He's this is the uh, the trade dispute from Phantom Menace angle, you know, that nobody you know asked for. Yeah, yeah. it's just like it, yeah, it's it's it it feels unnecessary. I don't. I I guess I don't know. If it, it, it seems like we're we're supposed to be more intrigued with his character and what feel sympathetic in some way, I guess, and want to feel like he's being set up to like have some kind of like evolution. Yeah, you know, within the series, right? He starts off as this like vapid, as you say, kind of like hedonist character, and then later on, he's going to become more virtuous. Early going with the hedonism stuff is just so over the top. I, f- I find it silly mm-hmm. as I'm watching it. I feel embarrassed for some of these actors for some reason. The application of like the lewd elements of this show, as well as the application of like the gore. Mm-hmm. Um, in the show just is off the mark for me. It again, it feels unnecessary in the context of of the the drama and just needlessly expositional. I feel it, it I just had this image of my in my mind of like watching, I don't know if, if it was episode two or three where you know we have a you know a very prolonged scene with the Playboy guy and the uh, you know, in his brothel or his club or whatever it is. And he's, you know, he's screwing the employees and, you know, we've got tits and dicks everywhere. And I just was imagining like Joss Whedon, just like, oh, I'm finally, you know, released from these barriers. I I can finally do (laughs) these things I always wanted to do. And like, you know, if I could only have like shown David Boreanaz's schlong, you know, way back when, you know, the show would have been so much, but I don't know. I, it seemed dumb. It seemed like I'm going to do like the Game of Thrones thing, or I'm going to do the Rome thing. You know, I'm going to do, you know, Westworld. You know, it's it it felt juvenile. Mm-hmm. There's other silly elements too that I think I can do without. I think I feel like we like we're being tugged back and forth a little bit too much early on here with like, okay, are we, is this supposed to be a grim kind of drama? But it's there's lots of like silly stuff, and I know that's part of you know the roots. Of, Joss Whedon, you know, that's Buffy. And this is just amplified, but I don't know if the amplified version of that that uh, recipe necessarily works. Like the the 10 foot tall, 11 year old girl. Yeah. It's silly. It's dumb. I, dude, yeah. Why is she there? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Uh, there's enough, there's enough that it needs to be explained and that I need to be convinced to be invested in to have these distractions. You know, uh, that said, you know, there's there's definitely elements that, like you said, I'm I'm interested to keep watching now. I don't feel as hooked as I would like to be, you know, in a you know a weekly HBO show like this. I just finished up episode three most recently, so the climactic scene there is Mary right know, get, getting assassinated, which was totally predictable. You know, it was really telegraphed as we were like getting there, but it, it still, it still managed to be a fairly powerful scene for me. And you know, on the one hand, it's like, this is, this is the show trying to like have its red wedding, but it's still, well, it's, it's not, 
yeah. it's a shadow of Game mm-hmm. of Thrones peak, but it, it, at least there was some elements of that that resonated with me. That was mm-hmm. like, okay, it just, this felt like, you know, this felt powerful. This felt like there's some stakes and I was moved by that. Yeah. But it, uh, to me, yeah, it's also unclear though about Mary's character obviously made a huge deal of her, her song and malady being interested in her and other Roth's character, right? Was he interested in her? I can't remember, but plenty of, plenty of other people, right? Interested in Mary for some reason. And I still am not clear what, what were they expecting Mary to do by amplifying her song? Obviously it causes right joy in the people who hear it or, or at least attached. What's it for? What, what are they trying to get? What, it, what's the ultimate goal all of those motivations were muddled to me. I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure. And then make, try, like you said, to try to make it like a red wedding to make that effective. It's like, well, we just met Mary. Yeah. I don't really know who she is. And I, and most of these characters have just met her. And so after the funeral, yeah, it, it would be shock. I'm obviously it would be shocking to the characters to have watched her be murdered, but the way they treated it, it was almost as if she was their best friend from time immemorial and you know it it was more affecting to them than i thought it would be maybe they're trying to connect that with her song and the fact that the song made everybody feel so joyous and then to have that snuffed out leaves them bereft of of hope or something but Mm -hmm. it just wasn't earned it's just it's just too quick yeah it's definitely one of those instances where there was a lot of like the storytellers telling you that this character is important. This character has a history. This character is important to the, you know, detective Mundy, you know, they have a history and, but it's, it's all telling you're all telling me there's, there's no showing. So we don't, it's not as impactful, not nearly as impactful for us as an audience, because like you say, we just met, met her. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sure. She's sympathetic. But and you're telling me all these things, but there's no runway for these characters like to build up any type of connection with us. The end of the epi- that particular episode finishes with the fireball oh, right. character, right? And she's got a whole bunch of other touched with her. So I guess Mary was basically the Pied Piper. Yeah. We're touched. I mean, yeah, but that was it. That, I mean, they did tell us that at least that like, yeah, we're just, we're trying to reach the touch to get him to come to the orphanage or whatever, but or what? Right, right, exactly. To what end? Or what, you know, is it just to gather everybody and protect them? Again, only a few episodes in. I'm really confused about the rules of the world that the Nevers inhabits. I mean, on the one hand, you've got widely recognized and known touched individuals like True and um, Penance. Yeah. Penance. Penance, you know, going to going out into society, going to the opera, you know, yeah. right. Open. But then a few scenes later, or maybe it's another episode, you've got another person who was touched the girl that was the uh, department store clerk. Mm-hmm. And she's being chased by cops mm-hmm. to be thrown in prison or thrown in jail. Right. She's mm-hmm. done something wrong because she's, yeah. you know, she's demonstrated she's has this ability. Well, why, why is one different than the other? You know, why are yeah. we like, why, why is the law chasing one, you know, touched character, but the others are just like mulling around and fine and accepted. I'm, 
there's a lot of inconsistency with mm -hmm. the rules so far that I'm finding. Yeah, and I have no idea about the production scheduling, you know, as far as when Joss left, how much had been completed, how much is how much can be attributed to that loss, or if it's just bad world building, bad storytelling. There's a lot of just kind of like casual brutality yeah. in this world as well, especially against yeah. women. Yes. And it's a little off-putting, you know, in the best of circumstances, but it's kind of extra off-putting when, you know, knowing that this is Joss Whedon vehicle. Yeah. Which I think is, I think what I'm most fascinated to see moving forward with the Nevers um, is when we get to that point, that demarcation line, when Whedon's influence has been extracted from the show entirely. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, and this is assuming that there's going to be a second season. You know, I'm pretty yeah, yeah. certain that there's a good chance of it because it's there's a lot of investment in the show. This is not a cheap. They've got a lot invested in the show. I, I would think that it would it would go forward. It'll be fascinating to see like how much of a turn it takes. You know, in a post Whedon production, if it gets better, it gets more focused. If they peel away some of those Whedon esque elements, some of his his sense of comedy yeah i'm just looking at the section about whedon's departure there on on the wiki page and it's november 25th 2020 whedon announced he was stepping down and then january 28th of 2021 british screenwriter philippa goslett was announced as the new showrunner yeah well it, so at the very least whedon is given that they're doing this kind of two half two half of a season one format whedon's highly what Whedon's mark is highly visible for this first six episodes. Yeah. I mean, he's directed two of those, mm -hmm. two of the first six. So he's, you know, these first half dozen are definitely like, this is definitely Whedon's world. Yeah. So, he, he directed episode five as well when you get there. So maybe, yeah, we only have to wait until the second half of this first season comes to like start seeing like how the show changes. I'm more, I'm more motivated to like, to stick it out, knowing that, knowing that there's a potential for like a, a pivot in some, in some way, you know, if this is, if this was just like, you know, if there wasn't anything, if Whedon wasn't involved in it and if there wasn't the extra element of his departure or a, a showrunner's departure, then, you know, this isn't necessarily a show I'd be super excited to keep watching, but knowing that there's a potential for, some improvement and some shift in some way, just to even just to kind of evaluate that and just see how, see yeah. what changes. Yeah. And I think some of those changes could easily be made too. It's not impossible. So just real quick with shadow and bone on Netflix. Um, I know we've mentioned it before. I'm not quite all the way through. I know that you have just begun scratching the surface of it. Yeah. So I'm not going to offer up any spoilers or anything like that, but it's been an interesting it's been an interesting to like kind of watch these kind of like concurrently um, in parallel. I'm farther along in, along in Shadow and Bone. I think I'm through six episodes of the eight. So we're nearly finished there. Two, you know, high fantasy shows here. The world of the Nevers, you know, grounded a little bit more in like kind of conventional, yeah. you know, a recognizable world. It's just with, yeah. you know, again, the like steampunk uh, aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely has that just by virtue of like, the height of the industrial era, you know, late 19th century. This is, I mean, this is right in Guy Ritchie's wheelhouse, right? <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of familiar elements there. Uh, Shadow and Bone is much more high fantasy. It's, you know, a completely fictionalized world based in it's like a kind of the same kind of era, but kind of this very Russian 
influence type of world. It's interesting. Very two different types of feelings you get from watching these two shows. I mean, whereas, you know, because the nevers is so like in your face with a lot of these, like, you know, the things we were talking about, like the, some of the violence, the, the graphic gore, the over the top sexuality, much more constrained on the shadow and bone side. I think I mentioned it before, you know, you definitely know you get, there's no mistaking that this is a YA theme type of fantasy show. This is not Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's definitely toned down the themes. But for me, so much more cohesive of a vision that's going on with that show. It suffers from the same thing in the first episode. A lot's thrown at you early on, the world building, getting to know like who characters are, what factions are involved, things like that. But while it's borderline overwhelming, like it is in the first episode of The Nevers, everything fits. Everything seems like fit together and have a purpose and have a reason for being there. And even though I do think that it's like really YA and its presentation, especially with the romance elements that are, that are sprinkled throughout shadow and bone, you know, every, every rope, we're going to talk about more of this after you, after you watch it, <laughs> I guess I'm really interested to get your take, but for me, it's like, you watch some of these, I'm like, it is very clear that these scenes are designed to like titillate 13 year old girls. <laughs> so it's a little like, okay, let's just get moving along. Another parallel with that show for me is like, you've got the two leads in this instance in Shadow and Bone, a male and a female lead really carrying, you know, the bulk of the show forward. They've, they've got really great chemistry and as lighthearted as some of the elements are of the show, there's enough that's compelling that makes me want to, see more of this world, which again is interesting when my experience watching the nevers is like, I just kind of want to get through some of this mm-hmm. <laughs> so we can like, we can like make it to like this next phase of whatever the nevers is going to be. Yeah. That's understandable. So anything else or should we move to the bad batch? I think I've said all I can say about the nevers for now. We should definitely revisit this, you know, after they yeah. finish their, their, the end of this first half of the season. You know, mm-hmm. So I guess after episode six, yeah. circle back and like take stock of where we are. So yeah, so on the bad batch, right? I've I'm caught up. You're just up to the pilot, right? Yeah, I am just through the the, the pilot episode. I don't have a lot that I can like speak to okay, to beyond that. General impressions. It's what you expected, I guess. And for me, that's good. I like it. I'm coming a little late to these animated Star Wars shows. You know when. The Clone Wars and then Rebels after that were originally out in rotation. I wasn't watching them. Recently, I've started kind of casually going through the Clone Wars episodes and released a good deal of them, you know, skipping over some of the ones that are less like, that's this, this is entirely just for kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I've really, I've, I've enjoyed it. I mean, I've enjoyed like, I think, I think so much of this is owed to, you know, Dave Filoni. He's got he's such a great, handle on the i don't know the heart of the star wars story Mm -hmm. it just really comes through for me with those really good episodes that feature the characters that you really care about and like the clone wars specifically anakin ahsoka the care that filoni has for this like world is such a stark contrast to the J.J. Abrams <laughs> treatment of <laughs> the Star Wars world. Mm-hmm. Um, and until, you know, The Mandalorian, we, you know, we only got that through these animated shows. Right. And 
yeah, the Bad Batch is like, again, it, it's just another in this like line of like, here's another interesting, thoughtful, you know, side story, you know, with some characters, some that are familiar, some are new, set in this world that feels like this is the heart, this is the core of Star Wars. This is what Star Wars feels like. This is what it felt like watching the original films when you were young. I enjoy it too. I agree with you. It's obviously it's Dave Filoni's fingerprints are all over it and characterizations are familiar very much in the vein of Rebels for me. When I first started watching the first episode, I felt, I don't know if it was impatience or <laughs> maybe just a little bit of disinterest, maybe distractedness when watching it, because I think I was also multitasking when I first watched the pilot, the first half of the pilot. The second half, I watched a little more closely. I was more invested in that, the second half of the, the pilot. Like that's what really more hooked me to say, yeah, this is, this is going to be good. It's going to be somewhere along the line of Rebels. Something that I'll, I'll continue to watch and won't feel strange as an old man watching a cartoon. <laughs> but uh, and and the voice acting's good. Right? Does it, is it D D Bradley Baker? Doesn't he basically do all the voices of the clones? So yeah, that's impressive in and of itself. Just having you know mm-hmm. that one person do all those characters and make their voices distinct, make their characters distinct. So somebody was making a joke about the. Omega character or Omega, which one is it? Are we gonna, is, you know, are we gonna right. do the the uh, New Zealand pronunciation of Omega? But uh, kind of uh, with Omega's character, like uh, reminiscent of from Rebels. Ezra, Ezra, right? There's something there, although Ezra's more of a uh, more of a rebel. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, and yeah. and I found, like I said, I've caught up for the second and third episode, and that has only confirmed. You know, the, the feelings that I had in that second half of the pilot. This is going to be something that I'll continue to watch. You know, good storytelling as well. Like you said, uh, a bit of reverence there for the material. You can tell Dave Filoni is a super fan and he's really into the details and it shows. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, it's the same recipe, you know, that was at play with The Mandalorian you know, in a sense, you know, and what made that such a triumph that you can be really true to, you know, the details of the Star Wars universe and like have lots of like texture to this world and things that like, you know, that echo back all the way to the original films, you know, and then enhance that with, you know, you know, keep building upon that, you know, without it coming off of like being like too, in the weeds for like casual, you know, Star Wars yeah. fans to like, to, to be inaccessible. It's really not, it's a different target audience to a degree, right. you know, an animated series versus, you know, the live action Mandalorian and the other series that will follow that. But, but the core of it feels the same to me. I mean, I think that after having watched the first couple of seasons of Mandalorian before I had really dug into any of these animated applications of star Wars with clone wars in particular, a little bit of rebels. I was surprised how like seamless it felt after watching the Mandalorian and then going back and watching the clone wars episodes like this feel, this has a lot of the same. I mean, obviously it's, it's for a younger audience. It's not as ambitious certainly, but there's just a lot of the core themes and like feelings that that come through. There's a lot of, I mean, Obviously, this this partnership with Filoni and um, John Favreau, you know, has gone back a long time. 
I mean, Favreau is like a voice actor in the Clone Wars, right? Um, mm-hmm. For uh, at least one character, one really important character, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I th- he might have done some others that I may have missed, but yeah, mainly him. So it's just fun, you know. I feel a lot of a lot of the uh, I get a lot of the same feels from a show like this as as I did from you know like Agents of Shield in the Marvel universe. Yeah, you know, right. that kind of like. This is just like being, this is just the, you know, the joy of being in this world, you know, being in this, like, you know, one of your favorite fictionalized universes. And like, there's just so many, there's so much room for different stories to be told. It was fun in particular watching that, that pilot for me, because I had just happened to watch most, one of the more recent Clone Wars episodes I had watched was a series of episodes where they introduced Saw Gerrera for the first time you know i mean though he was you know introduced in like film film and television format in rogue um, rogue one i don't know if his character was written about in the novels or whatever but but yeah seeing his like introduction into the world you know was kind of fun and then like you know revisiting that character again here and they made same thing with just the reference to that the planet Onderon in general and that the mm-hmm. whole all the events that were going on there. And I've heard they're going to try to uh do some connective tissue with this and some of some of the live action stuff. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I, I mean it seems that seems like a given at this point after what we know of like uh what we saw in uh, in the Mandalorian, you know, there's there's just great symmetry with what Disney's doing with all these new Star Wars enterprises. And again, it's like because Filoni has just got the keys to the you know the George Lucas kingdom more or less. Yeah. I mean, he's the basically George Lucas's Padawan yeah. learner, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So that would be. I mean, that's fun. That's that's a, like for like really hardcore fans. They're like there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of fans that are watching both these shows like us. Yeah, Mandalorian, and then you know Bad Batch, and then um, what comes next? Casual fans and otherwise, but there's plenty of other fans that are like, I'm not gonna watch a cartoon, but I am gonna watch yeah. the Mandalorian. Right, that's fine too, and you're not gonna miss anything. But there's that extra layer of like depth that for people that are really highly invested and highly interested in that universe to like, oh, you get to you know pick up on some things in these animated series and then see it kind of like come to life in the live action, mm-hmm. you know, series and maybe movies in the future. And that's really gratifying for like those really invested fans. And I hope that Disney doesn't make the mistake Marvel too of making their television shows mere lead ups to movies. I can kind of see that tendency there because they know not everybody is on Disney Plus, not everybody's going to watch all of these shows. And so we're going to leave you know, I think about, you know, WandaVision or something that was just a build up for a movie in a sense. And but you don't need to watch it to watch the movie. And just that would be my only concern with how they do the the uh, connective tissue between the television shows, both Marvel and Disney to make it worthwhile to watch these shows and actually pay off the audience narratively with the shows rather than just make them six episode commercials for a movie. Hopefully they, they won't fall in that trap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's a valid concern so far. We, to me, at least so far, it seems like there's more signs in the Marvel universe of, you know, of that type of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like so what we've seen 
so far with Star Wars, it it feels like more like these are like self-contained entities. Like mm-hmm. the Mandalorian felt very much like this is yeah. this is just like its own thing, even though it you know alluded to a lot of other things that were history of characters and different elements that were cherry picked throughout the universe that it could incorporate into that show. It still like felt like this felt like its own thing. The animated series that came before this definitely felt like they were their own things at the time. I think there was no, back then when they were doing Clone Wars, Filoni was doing Clone Wars and, and Rebels and stuff, he probably had no, no indication <laughs> that they were like, he'd be able to carry through some of these, like carry forward some of these characters yeah. into another level. You know, you know, the prospects of a Mandalorian show, you know, yeah. on a Disney streaming service. It also helps you know. that the characters aren't continuing really, you know, in the Star Wars universe, there's, you can't do that with Obi-Wan. There's, yeah. a, there's a finite, you know, um, amount there that you can do. And so there's no temptation. But with, in the Marvel Universe, that temptation can be there with these characters that are continuing to make movies and be in the films. Definitely. And you're right. Yeah, Dave's done this already. You like, you've already mentioned, like, with Clone Wars, with Rebels, that stuff was already there for people who wanted to. And some people would take that. But The Mandalorian did it the you know, the best probably because Dave's involved in it again. He mm-hmm. knows how to play both audiences, you know, the general audience who's going to watch something and then those hardcore fans who want to find those Easter eggs and those details. Absolutely. I mean, now if we could only just like retcon the uh, Rise of Skywalker with Dave Filoni being involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had this like, I won't go on another like how much I hate the Rise of Skywalker Skywalker <laughs> rant. Not today, at least. That'll come again in the future, I'm sure, after I watch it again. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in, I think it's season five. There's like, there's a lot of seasons. There's like seven or eight. I don't know. Okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot of episodes of that thing. Uh, I think it was around season five. Somewhere around there was they like start introducing more of the uh, the characters from Mandalore. And are you familiar with this, this plot line where... Obi-Wan has like this kind of like, you know, reference romance with like the Duchess right, yeah. of Mandalore. Uh-huh. And no spoilers, but, she, you know, she, you know, she dies. Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> right? She, <laughs> she dies. Thinking back, you know, to what they did with Ray's character. Right? Yeah. And, right. and now that we know, it's like there was this debate about like, okay, is she going to be Obi-Wan's? You know, okay, first, yeah. uh, after they, again, they ab- they disappointingly abandoned Ryan Johnson's idea of like, she's just nobody. She's just, yeah. she's nobody. Right. He, she's just, she's comes from nothing, but she's a Jedi. And that's cool. Mm-hmm. You know, setting that aside, but ultimately what we know now is like, apparently there was like this debate of like, okay, is she going to be Palpatine's <laughs> prodigy or is she going to be, you know, is she going to be Obi-Wan's daughter? Holy hell, how did they not make her Obi-Wan's daughter? Yeah. Obi-Wan's yeah. like the unknown daughter that he has with Duchess Satine, who was the of the leader of Mandalore, mm-hmm. <laughs> connection to the Mandalorian, and also the sister of Bo Katan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you like miss? How do you swing and miss that badly with a Star Wars character? Yeah. Impressive. Yeah, hopefully now with Dave's involvement, they can course correct on the uh, cinematic side, learn their lessons, and also just learn how to take the living world. You can you can go back to the past and look at this stuff, but tell new stories and have new characters. It doesn't have to all be the Emperor and the Skywalkers and Han Solo, right. et cetera, et cetera. 
there's plenty there. There's a big enough world. And Dave Filoni's telling those narratives within, quite frankly, you know, a nostalgic framework. You know, he he mm-hmm. loves it too. And you can be nostalgic and also, you know, look to the future. Along those lines, if I have one, my one concern troll, you know, for this is something that I think we've talked about before was with everything in the, everything that's been happening with the Star Wars universe of late and everything that's kind of queued up for the foreseeable future. We're still all, we're still always looking backward, right? All these stories are all kind of in the past. We're, we're still not moving this story forward yet, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as, you know, forward in a sense is we're getting like some really great stories and great like standalone characters that were, you know, kind of adjacent to like the big three or four characters of the originals. But, you know, everything is happening in like in the timeline that came before the latest trilogy of films and nothing is happening post post the, that that trilogy. And I just wonder how long we're going to have to wait um, until we do start to see like some genuinely new and fresh stories and new characters that are not connected to any of these other, you know, all the foundational characters and foundational stories. It's it's at least going to be a few years because again, everything is like that we know that's queued up over the next few years is all taking place in like older timeline. But yeah, I guess it's a concern troll, but it's not really that big of a deal for me. I'm still really enjoying what we're getting in the back of my mind. I am still thinking about that. I was like, when are we going to go, when are we going to push this forward a little bit? Yeah. It'll be interesting. I don't know anything about what, Taika Waititi is planning, right? Because he's queued up for a Star Wars movie. Yeah, maybe we'll get something there. Yeah.